Welcome back to Sea to Shining Sea, a podcast on the American Discovery Trail and walking coast to coast across the USA. It's episode five. I'm Dave Whitson. On my first foray on the American Discovery Trail, I was met with a few common questions. Beyond the initial bewilderment, what on earth are you doing? And why on earth are you doing it? I was often met with a third inquiry. What's your cause? And indeed, as I've read through one trail journal after another, the people walking for the sheer pleasure of it are relatively few and far between. On the contrary, there are people walking to raise funds and awareness in support of all manner of different things, from environmental degradation to military veteran health to life-threatening diseases. I have a cause in my own walk, I suppose, but it's a bit murkier. Like many Americans, I've spent the last handful of years watching our national dissolution like a slow-moving car crash, perplexed by the gradual and then sudden collapse and grasping for actions to take that would be constructive in pushing back at it. I was struck, though, by the work of writers like Bill Bishop in The Big Sort and Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone, highlighting how we Americans have become self-segregated into politically homogenous enclaves, while at the same time the social networks that once galvanized us have broken down. We are isolated and lonely and suspicious. One of my favorite writers, Brian Stevenson, talks about the importance of getting proximate. What I needed to do, I thought, was to get proximate, to get out of my Portland, Oregon bubble, and connect with Americans from all across the country. It's a cause that feels genuine to me, even if it eludes the graceful elegance of a tagline and an easy call to action. And I don't say either of those things dismissively. I admire and admit to being a little envious of the walkers who have a far more concrete mission, one which points towards a more tangible and viable impact. In this episode, I explore the relationship between the American Discovery Trail and walking for a cause with two such walkers. Up first is Dee Fournier, one of the most recent finishers of the ADT, having completed her trek just before the close of 2019. She walked in order to raise awareness about domestic violence in honor of her late sister. She is followed by Robin Grappa, who is on the other end of the spectrum, one of the first to complete the ADT along with her mother. She walked to raise awareness and funds in support of aplastic anemia and MDS, and she ultimately made a genuinely remarkable impact. So that's the plan. Dee and Robin walking for a cause. Hope you enjoy. Dee Fournier, originally from Maine, has spent the better part of 2019 walking across the USA on the American Discovery Trail, finishing just a few weeks back in Cape Enlopen. She joins me now to reflect on her walk and the larger driving force behind it. Thanks for talking with me, Dee. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. The slogan for your walk across the USA is Dee Goes From Trial to Trail. Could you tell me about the trial and the larger tragedy that is behind your walk? The trial that led up to the trail was actually the murder of my sister. She was murdered by her estranged husband in front of their two young children. And after that, things for me continued to be a trial. I couldn't really hold on to a job. I just couldn't find any satisfaction with any kind of job. Relationships suffered. I just felt like I was kind of walking through life without any meaning. I was just even moving from town to town, from state to state even, from east coast to west coast, just all over the place and just couldn't seem to find any stable ground. I just needed to find something to focus on. And somehow the trial led to the trail, which was literally a trail <laughs> going from East Coast to West Coast. And a friend had suggested, why don't you put your two passions together, your hiking and your photography? It was just a matter of hours before I agreed to that and texted her back and said, I'm game. And then I found out about the American Discovery Trail. <laughs> and less than a year later, I was actually on the trail. <laughs> So it was a pretty quick turnaround. It was. It was. I think a large part of that was because I had no ties anywhere, no personal ties. It was easy for me to go. I didn't have a house that I had to deal with, and I wasn't in any kind of relationship. And it was just it was a very easy decision for me to make. 
Is the walking across the USA a part of what drove you to it? Or was it really just you needed to have a walk? You needed to do something with a clear direction that would be long? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very long. I think that I think I was a, a lot in that. I think it was to help me, even though it's been 17 years since Julie was killed. I didn't release a lot of the hurt and the anger, and I don't think that I necessarily processed it all. And I always think that there's always still the processing part. I think there's still a lot of the releasing. There's no time frame for grief. And the way that she was so tragically taken away from us, I think that makes it even more difficult to process. So I think that this walk helped me process it a little bit better, helped me release some of, you know, the anger, the hurt and everything a little bit better. It was, it became so healing when I was able to share my story, you know, as I hit these small towns across America, stopping in at little local newspapers and say, walking in and putting myself out there and saying, I have a story for you. And I would hand them my business card and tell them what I was doing. And a lot of times the jaws would drop and they'd be like, have a seat. I would love to talk to you about this crazy journey. <laughs> so that was healing for me. And I'm hoping that as the newspapers that I spoke with, the reporters and the stories that got out and published in the papers was able to hopefully help people heal. And I hope that I was able to educate them the readers as well, because this whole thing has been a learning experience for me as well, learning more and more about domestic violence. I've been thinking a lot about people like you who do this walk with a deep cause in mind, a cause driving them along the trail. So you just mentioned this advocacy piece, putting yourself out there to tell your story to newspapers. Were there other ways that having this overarching mission shaped your walking experience or your plans or the ways that you engaged with people and places along the walk? I was very naive when I, (laughs) on every single level, I was very naive before I stepped foot on the trail. And I think I romanticized in my head what it was going to entail. I had initially envisioned me stopping in at women's shelters along the way and encouraging these women victims of domestic violence. They're doing the right thing. You can do this. Even if I kept them from going back to their abuser for one day, you know, I would think that would be a success. Then I realized as I was going along that I would call up a shelter or email a shelter and say, this is what I'm doing. I would love to stop in. And the response would be like, that sounds great. What you're doing is awesome. But due to confidentiality and <laughs> the safety of the victims and everything, they're like, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I have to rethink this and regroup. So that's when I decided I'd be stopping in at the news outlets. So that was my way of being able to raise awareness. Also with the sign on my backpack, you know, trek across America to raise awareness for domestic violence. I got stopped all the time. The American Discovery Trail isn't just a trail. It's cities, it's small little towns, it's rural roads and whatnot. I had cars stop and thank me for what I was doing. You know, people, they'd give me a donation, get some water. or You know, it's just a, I had one person, I was in Nevada and a motorcyclist pulled over up ahead of me and as I was walking along and I really didn't think much of it. I just figured they needed to do something for their motorcycle. As I was walking, she got off her motorcycle and trotted towards me and she goes, this isn't much, but what you're doing is an awesome thing. And what really amazed me about her is this woman was probably maybe 24 years old, just a young, young woman. And she goes, I come from a generation that everybody thinks that we feel that we're entitled. (laughs) And she goes, I want to prove that I'm different. Very kind young woman. And I appreciated her stopping on her way to work to help out a stranger. It was amazing to me. That's really neat. Let's stick with this a little bit longer. Is there an experience or two that stand out in your memory as particularly profound or special where you could see the impact of linking this walk with your advocacy and awareness work? There are so many. And as I went more east, it seems as though I was meeting more and more people where people were open with me and talking to me about domestic violence and 
how they knew somebody or how they themselves were a victim. I remember being at this diner and, and it's funny because I don't think of terms of two weeks ago, two months ago, or, you know, <laughs> three months ago, it's like Ohio ago, Colorado ago. <laughs> I'm trying to remember which state I was in. I think it may have been Kansas or Missouri, but I was in this little diner and I was about ready to set out that morning. And I just kind of happened to go into the diner. I wasn't really that hungry, but I thought, you know, maybe I will just to get some feel. And I set my backpack down and the owner came over and, you know, breakfast is on us. The waitress came over and she started talking to me and she goes, I don't know what my problem is. She goes, every relationship I've been in, it's been abusive. I've been the victim, you know. She goes, I've been with my, I don't know if it's a boyfriend that she was with or her husband and for 17 years. He follows me. He's verbally abusive. She goes, why do I keep doing this? It's difficult for me to hear that. And other than giving her my business card and telling her about the National Domestic Violence Hotline, giving her that number, the only thing I could really do is listen because I'm not a trained counselor or anything. The best I can do is listen and offer encouragement and encourage her to get away. And just before our conversation ended, she said, but I love him. And I go, but you need to love yourself more. And she just kind of looked at me. I was surprised that I said that. I don't know where those words came from, but it seemed to hit her. And I just saw a little spark. And I think that people felt very comfortable talking to me when I went through these little crowns because I was the stranger in the town. Yeah. They felt confident telling me what they were going through because I had no connection to their abuser. I had no connection to family. I had no connection to the town. I was somebody they could confide in with confidence and they wouldn't worry about their story being betrayed by me, revealing to their abuser what they were saying to me. That impacted me probably about halfway through the journey, realizing why people were approaching me because I was no stranger danger. Yeah. I'm just trying to grapple in my mind. You're walking and still reconciling, facing your grief. And now you're hearing these stories of women also managing their own situations that are ongoing. Did that help you in your own journey? Did that make it more complicated and challenging and emotionally wrought? I felt as though it was more healing for me. If by my sister's death, which was so tragic, and if I can somehow get a positive out of that by my journey, because I'm on this journey because of what happened to my sister. Mm -hmm. If I've reached anyone, if I've reached one person, and encouraged her to get out of a relationship or just let her know that she was comfortable talking to me. And that's the beginning of a lot of it, too, is for the victim to recognize that she is a victim. And when you say things out loud, it kind of releases a lot. That's the first step is saying it out loud. You know, you say it to the universe, and that's the first step to freedom. That's their first step of getting away from their abuser. So I think that meeting these women that are battling their abuser emotionally, physically, and trying to get out of their prison, that was very healing to me when I thought a conversation went well. But I mean, a lot of these women that I ran into, I never heard from again. So I don't know what impact I may have had. Hopefully a positive one. Zooming out to your walk more broadly, your walk and this is probably true for every coast-to-coast -coast walker. Your walk was beset by multiple significant challenges. Which stick out in your mind as most impactful to you? Physically? Physical, the weather, the itinerary, oh. <laughs> all of those things. Like, <laughs> What threw you for a loop? D, all of the above. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in coincidence, and I don't believe that things just happened. I think everything is kind of preset. There's a reason why things happen. There's a reason why I took a left on the trail there and got lost, you know, as irritated as I was with myself. I got that. I understood that. 
that there was a reason for it. The challenges for every day, I mean, whether it was the weather, you know, from getting flooded out in Missouri and trying to find higher dry ground, thunderstorms, lightning storms, you know, just hating being in my tent and scared out of my mind. A little squirrel's paw can sound like a polar bear's <laughs> paw. <laughs> in the early morning, you know, it's, and your heart starts just a pounding. Physically, you know, my feet and my knees, it was a very constant. Every day, it was a new challenge. Every day, I woke up saying, what the frig am I doing here? I don't want to do this. Every day, I thought I wanted to quit. I mean, it was a fleeting thought most days. Some days, they stayed a little bit longer. But a lot of days, I'd wake up in the tent. I was sore from the hard ground. And it was always a challenge every single day. I think the greatest challenge I had to deal with was my own ego and trying to rid myself of any fears or to go forward and push through it. It's amazing how we can amplify any fear to mean that to indicate that the trip is about to be over, right? That almost anything <laughs> translates yes. into the end in our minds. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It absolutely, absolutely. You can justify it that way. <laughs> It seemed like you had a pretty significant knee injury towards the end. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know how it happened, but did something to my knee. I got to the hospital, got to the emergency room. The doctor knew that I was hiking cross country. I had <laughs> no insurance and I couldn't stick around for an MRI, nor could I afford it. So he made an educated guess by looking at my knee and the description of the pain I was in. And he said that he was rather certain it was a torn meniscus. Hindsight being what it is, I don't believe it was a torn. I think I may have torn it a little bit. There's a, like a partial tear as it still, it does bother me at times. But I definitely aggravated my knee and I was in a, a lot of pain for a few days. But muddled through that, and after a few days of rest, I was able to keep going forward. And not only that, but I was able to lighten my load because I had a trail angel, Casey, come to my rescue with her van and a camper. So I was able to lighten my load and be able to sleep in a soft bed every night after hiking my, you know, I'd go 15, 18 miles a day and actually feel really good. I'd meet up with her at the, the end of the day and be able to continue the trek without having to sleep in the tent and have someplace warm to sleep as well. So she was with you not for days, but was it weeks? I think it was two and a half, three weeks. I think we need a term for like the mega trail angel. <laughs> Like, trail angel doesn't cut it. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the MTA. <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, the story of you being flooded in Missouri was repeated to me by the people in the general store when I passed through. That was... Oh, is that right? <laughs> it was still the talk of the town. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll That's be repeating kind of that story to every walker uh, for the rest of time. Well, the thing is, is that they had me go in the stall because of this crazy storm that lingered there forever. And so I was in an animal stall. So when the water started flooding my tent, I knew it wasn't clean water coming in. <laughs> and I'm like, this is repulsive. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I took about five showers the next day. <laughs> I couldn't get clean enough. <laughs> they said you ended up just taking shelter in the post office? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered that the post office lobbies are open 24-7. So I just brought everything in there and put my sleeping pad down. And <laughs> I think I dozed for an hour and a half. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, that's miserable. Yeah, when you get your sleep interrupted in the middle of the night, it just throws things off for like three days. Oh, yeah. It's rough. Yeah. So those are some of the challenges. Are there a couple moments that stand out for you from the walk as particularly joyous? It's the people I met, the incredibly kind people that I met when I was in Kansas. I met this lovely, wonderful, wonderful family. She reached out to me and she said that she'd like to host me and I'm like, fantastic. And she goes, you know, what would you like for dinner? And I'm like, well, you know, I come from Maine and lobster sounds really good right about now. <laughs> <laughs> 
And she started laughing. She goes, well, that's kind of hard to get in southwest Kansas. And I go, well, that's true. So I said, well, if steak isn't a problem, you know, steak would be great. And she said, great. She goes, we got a half a cow about two days ago. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, being almost vegetarian, this was like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I didn't think anything of it, but I really hadn't had any red meat in a long time other than maybe a burger. So she made this fantastic, huge steak. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Well, because I hadn't had any red meat in so long, I got really sick. And I felt incredibly bad. You know, how do you tell a wonderful hostess that the wonderful meal that she made for you is making you sick? And so she was just so kind. She goes, I am so sorry. She goes, I didn't even think about that either. She called up her mom because she had children that are very active children. She goes, you're not going to be able to get any sleep here. I'm going to have you stay at my mom's house. So she took me over to her mom's house where I stayed there for a couple of days in the throes of a heat wave. Her family was just incredibly kind to me. They hydrated me and they kept me well fed, got me over the red meat issue. <laughs> but that was in Kansas and I would have to say, hands down and no disrespect to any other state, Kansas folks are the nicest folks, part of the country, and they have the biggest hearts. I was really just felt very blessed meeting all the folks in Kansas. They're just really, really good people for sure. Yeah, I enjoyed walking through there as well. The most common question I get is the safety question, and you're walking through this lens of domestic violence, gender-based violence. You're setting out alone, a woman walking across America. I imagine you've gotten this question even more than I have. Did you feel safe, and how did you manage? I never felt ever that I was in a dangerous situation. And I even hitchhiked. Mm -hmm. When my feet were so bad, I had to hitchhike. And I never felt threatened. This kind of parallels somewhat with victims of domestic violence. You follow your gut, that voice that's your inner voice, when it says, beware. And when I ever did get that signal, I would listen and I would move on, you know, one way or the other, whether somebody offering me a ride and I'd say no thanks to hitchhiking and being offered a ride. I would be aware of my surroundings. To be honest with you, I never felt in danger by any other human ever, other than the car that veered off the road was coming <laughs> right at me. But that was distracted driving, I believe. But as far as me feeling threatened one-on-one -on -one by another person, I never once really felt in danger. I believe that is because of all the positive energies and the prayers and the love that has and continues to surround me. But I was surrounded by this big white light of protection. And I firmly, without a doubt, believe that. I believe that helped keep me safe as well as you have to be smart about it mm -hmm. and make right decisions, not be impulsive and be thoughtful about your decisions. Sometimes when you're scared, you can make a decision that isn't right because your wires are crossing. I feel that whenever I was in a situation where I was a little scared or whatnot, there's like this calmness that comes over me and helps me make the right decision without all the other craziness that's going on around me interfere with what I need to do. With that said, I know it was very symbolic of me to be hiking alone. Mm. I was hiking with Mike, of course, for a while, and I felt as though that was taking away what I was trying to set out to do. No disrespect towards Mike, of course, but I felt as though I needed to hike alone to empower other women, let them see that this woman is strong enough to hike across country. I can be strong enough to leave this domestic violence environment. So that's why I told Mike I needed to go solo. It was more because it represented a powerful woman. Not that I'm powerful, but it sets the right message that I wanted to put out there. You seem pretty powerful. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> when I was crying almost every day, I didn't feel all that powerful. <laughs> yeah, but you kept going, you know? Yes, yes. It was just towards the end when I was having the emotional setbacks. And there were times when I thought, man, I should be crying right now. I'm so pissed <laughs> off or upset. <laughs> but I also knew that those stories that were upsetting to me in hindsight would be comedic. So I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> what did it mean to arrive at Cape Henlopen? That was mixed emotions. I did a little video when I arrived on the beach. 
I think I was kind of numb to it. And I haven't looked back at that video or too many of the photographs because it's too emotional for me to look at them or to watch the video. I can't do it. I think it's still too new. I'm still in the phase of what do I do now that the journey is over? I don't know if I'll ever be able to look at those. Not in the near future, I, I won't be able to. So I don't know exactly what it means yet. <laughs> you would think <laughs> I would have figured it out by now, but I've been purposely not thinking about that. And I don't know if that's normal or not. Oh, it's so normal. Oh, it is? Yeah. You've oh. been finished for like, what, three weeks? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a mess coming back. <laughs> <laughs> like, what have, you, <laughs> what have you been trying to do to get by? How are you managing reentry? I think I'm doing okay. I mean, I have a hard time going into like Walmart or any stores with all these people and it's sensory overload with the lights, with the people, with the noise. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate where I am right now. It's literally a two minute walk from the beach. So I'm able to go down to the beach, not far from my childhood home. And the beach that I'm near is where I used to go as a kid. It's nice for me to get out and walk. Everybody's like, aren't you tired of walking? And I go, no, this is what's keeping me sane right now, is going out for a five to 10 mile walk. Or even if it's a couple miles, I get that peace. That's helping me with the reentry. And I'm, I'm doing everything slowly. I, I can't imagine trying to get back into society or real life just like that and snap of a finger. That wouldn't work for me. I, I would go into a huge anxiety and depression there's the hiker's depression, which is very real. And me being prone to depression, I feared that. And I think that's what, towards the end of my journey, I think that's what was getting to me. You know, it was just the fear of going into that depression mode. But so far, in the three weeks, I've been doing pretty well. It's a long process. I spoke with a man who has written about returning from pilgrimage. That's my frame of reference more than wilderness treks is five weeks walking towards Rome or Santiago de Compostela in Europe. And the way that he frames this is stop thinking of Rome, Santiago, Cape Enlopen as the finish point. He says it's the turnaround point. And you're not going to finish for a long time because all of the meaning making and the processing, that only happens after you're done. Right. That's an awesome way to look at it. Yeah, that makes sense. What does everyone listening need to know about domestic violence? There are no boundaries. Domestic violence does not discriminate. It affects the affluent as well as the poor. There's no cookie-cutter solution. It's all over the place. It bleeds past the lines. There are no lines. It is prevalent in our society. I have to say that you... Everybody that's listening knows somebody that is a victim of domestic violence, whether they know it or not. They know somebody or they've known somebody, they will know somebody. And what's really sad about that is that because they know a victim, they also know an abuser. Abusers can be very charming. You never suspect. They manipulate. It's very scary that they're out there and they're almost invisible. They're hiding in plain sight. Silence is the abuser's ally. They are able to manipulate the victim and keep him quiet because he's threatening to kill family, the children, their pet. The domestic violence hotline, 1-800-799-7233 or 799-SAFE, is not just for victims of domestic violence, but it's also for people that may suspect that somebody is a victim of domestic violence. It's all anonymous. You don't have to leave your name, whether you're a victim or a friend of somebody. If you're a friend and you're calling, the hotline will help you get local resources available for you so you know how to help the victim. And if it's a victim that's calling, they'll be able to help you because there's so many different levels of domestic violence, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, emotional, there's so many layers of that. This national hotline can counsel and can help victims and friends of victims. Domestic violence is prevalent. It's still widespread. And I don't know how this can be so acceptable in our society. It shouldn't be. Yeah, as you say, it, it hides in plain sight. And it often makes a lot of bystanders complicit. Mm -hmm. The signs are out there. 
and a lot of people just want to believe that it couldn't possibly be happening in this case. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if it's denial or if people are just blind. And horror, right? (laughs) Wanting to deny that such horror could be so close with someone who seemed so decent and likable. Exactly. Look at Ted Bundy. Yeah. Like I said, the manipulator, the abuser is often a very charming person. Sometimes not. Sometimes you can't see it. And for whatever reason, it's not reported. And I find that the smaller towns, it seems to be even more prevalent because people, whether they're related to the abuser or they're afraid of the abuser, even though they might not be the victim, the repercussions of a small town. It's really sad that the abuser can get away with it because they're a bully in a small town. Did this walk bring you healing or peace? I wondered that. I believe it has because it's given me a little bit more clarity as to what I want to do when I grow up. (laughs) I say at 56 years old. (laughs) This journey was just the beginning of my journey with domestic violence and what I can do in hopes to help and be an advocate and be able to help women and encourage women to get out of their domestic violence environment. If I can help in some way, whether it's volunteering or whatever capacity I can do, I would like to be able to get involved deeper with domestic violence, for sure. Thank you for speaking with me, Dee, and and telling me your story. It's been great. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate you reaching out. Robin Grappa is one of Milkshake and Gumdrop, a mother-daughter duo that completed the ADT way back in 2006 in support of aplastic anemia and MDS research and awareness. Thanks for talking with me, Robin. Hey, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I think Milkshake and Gumdrop is one of the more colorful pairing of trail names. Where does that come from? Actually, on this trail... Early on, I was hiking with a guy named Jeff, which I can tell you a little bit more about him later, too. I had gotten a milkshake, and they just made me so silly. Like, I don't know if it was like the sugar rush or what. And he just got to just calling me milkshake while he was hiking with us. That was in, I think we were in West Virginia then. And then later, my mom got gumdrop because she had made this porridge before we went on the hike, and we had it mailed to ourselves. And our first time trying it, it was disgusting. It was like the <laughs> consistency of snot. It was so gross. And all we had, because we didn't have a whole lot of food, so she had gumdrops, and she was throwing these gumdrops in this porridge to make it taste better. And God. so we had people on our trail journal that I was keeping started calling her gumdrops. So we kind of just got these little trail names from on the ADT gumdrop and milkshake. Oh, <laughs> man. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, so this was back in 2006. You were one of the first to thru-hike the ADT, so it's more common at this point, but it was a total novelty back then. What drew you to it? The ADT actually came up in a Google search, believe it or not, back in 2006. I was looking to do something big, some sort of big adventure, and I actually was thinking about just walking across the country, and I went on to Google and I said, walk across the country, and the American (laughs) Discovery Trail popped up, and I was like, holy crap, there's a trail with turn-by-turn directions from one coast to the other. This is perfect, and I was super excited, and that was it. That was it. It was that easy. (laughs) Yep. I'm curious, you know, we're sitting here 14 years removed from that walk. I was looking at your trail journal earlier. It's February 8th right now. So 14 years ago today, you were at the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. So it's amazing just how much time has passed. Despite that, I'm sure some aspects of it remain vivid in your memory. What stands out to you as you look back on it? Oh, and we talk about this all the time. There's so many stories that just get told and retold when my mom and I get together. But overall, just like looking back at 2006 and the whole experience, I think the biggest thing that always stands out, which a lot of other hikers on this trail will probably say, are the people you meet. Yeah. We've met so many amazing people. And the states we went through, like you think of all the states you go through, two of them that really stood out that really is going to surprise people for us was Indiana and Kansas. Hmm. Of all the states, I mean, we had the beautiful scenery out west and everything. Every state had something really cool about it. But I just remember Indiana and Kansas being really cool because I think I was worried about Kansas being flat and boring. Yeah. And it was wheat harvest season and the farmers there were really cool. Indiana, the minute we crossed the border, the people there were just like swarming us with kindness. It was just a really cool experience to have. We had the charity aspect behind it too, which I think 
kind of fueled that a little bit, but that was just the people we met. And obviously the scenery, the sore feet, a lot of stuff like that. But I have a lot of specific stories too that I could just, I could go on forever. (laughs) I'm interested in hearing you bring up Indiana just because when I ask people about their recollections, Kansas actually does come up quite a bit. Nevada comes up a lot. There are a lot of states that pop. West Virginia shows up. I almost never hear people bring up Indiana. Can you talk more about what that state was like for you? Sure. I actually think it's in my journal. I think we literally crossed the border and we had people driving up to us. I remember a car drove up to us and said, you ladies have to call this phone number. It's our local radio station. They want to talk to you. And we were like, okay. (laughs) But my mom and I had to pee really, really bad. And we were in this place where there weren't like a place to go. And so we're like, we're going to go to the bathroom and then we're going to call this radio station. And the first thing we saw was a fire station. So we were like, they have a bathroom in there. Let's go ask them to use it. So we walk into this fire station, ask these their bathroom, and of course they let us. And as we're coming back out, we're about to leave. They say, wait, come in here. And they pull us in their office and they have the radio station on their phone, on speaker phone. <laughs> and they interviewed us right there in the fire station. I mean, that was day one. And oh then like God. we walk a little further into town and this couple grabs us and brings us to their restaurant and gives us lunch. And then we met Hickory in southern Indiana. He just came out and randomly hiked with us for a day. He heard about us, and he came out to Colorado and hiked with us for three more weeks in the mountains. Oh, my God. I mean, it was just stuff like that, like all the way through Indiana. And then there was a southern Indiana that's really beautiful. There's a lot of, like, hiking trails and stuff down there. So there's even some really nice, really pretty hiking trails and sections through there. So we had, like, everything. It was a little bit of everything in, in Indiana, of all places. <laughs> that's awesome. You mentioned the cause that you walked for, aplastic anemia and MDS. Could you tell me more about it? What's your personal history with it? And what did you hope to achieve through your walk? So when I was 18, I was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, which is a bone marrow disease. It's not a cancer. No idea why I got it. Most people don't know why. And basically your bone marrow stops making blood. So you get all kinds of common symptoms like fatigue and bruising and all this stuff from blood counts being low. And I was treated for that in the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in college. And I had some pretty severe complications from it. The medications, I had some seizures where I was life-flighted in a helicopter to an ICU. And it was just a whole summer of just crazy, crazy getting treated for this. And I luckily bounced back and kind of went into remission, which doesn't happen that easy all the time. A lot of people are getting retreated for it and having to go back in for more. I, I had an immunosuppressive therapy. So I just went into remission. It wasn't really a cure for the disease. It only cures a bone marrow transplant. So a lot of people go through that. Mm. It's just, it's kind of a crazy disease to go through. And when I was first diagnosed with it, it was 1997, 97, 98. Nobody had heard of aplastic anemia. When I went in and they, they told me what it was, we we're like, what is that? Like, no clue. And they told us it wasn't leukemia. And we all went, oh, thank goodness. And the doctor said, well, actually, we know a lot about leukemia. <laughs> we don't know a lot about aplastic anemia. She's like, oh, great. That's awesome. You know, so it was really scary. That was really scary. Getting diagnosed with a serious disease that's potentially fatal, if not treated, and not having any idea. And your doctor having one other patient, and that's it. Yeah. And so the hike, the biggest thing, of course, we wanted to raise funds for research and to support the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation, which is a nonprofit for these diseases, and they're awesome. But the biggest thing was we wanted to raise awareness. We wanted to just start yelling Aplastic Anemia and MDS, which is myelodysplastic syndrome, it's hard to say, but just kind of yelling at everybody, just like, is that way if another patient gets diagnosed from it and they've heard of it, at least that is a little easier, you know? And I'd like to think that hopefully that hike maybe spurred some of that and maybe made at least a tiny impact that way is kind of what I was going for, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I've been trying to wrap my mind around, and that's kind of the purpose of this episode, is the strong connection between people walking the ADT, walking across the U.S., and being driven by a cause. And it has stood out to me just on the first stretch that I spent walking the ADT, people routinely, when they found out I was walking across the U.S., they asked me, you know, what's your cause? So there's a tight relationship there. When you were thinking about doing something post-remission and then you immediately gravitated towards walking across the U.S. and linking it to this cause, can you make sense in your mind of why you went in that direction? Why is it that this walk seemed like the right kind of post-remission challenge? Well, I think as far as hiking the ADT and the ADT being perfect for a charity hike, that was kind of a happy accident. 
But uh, I was originally just wanting to do some sort of fundraiser, like a 5K or something. And at the same time, I was just planning on doing something big to celebrate my life because (laughs) I was told I was in remission seven years after my treatment. And it kind of hit me, you know, what I'd all been through and everything. So I was like, I got to do something really big with my life. And so that's why I came up with the idea to hike. And I was working on this little 5K or something to raise funds. And they kind of just smashed together. And then when I started hiking the ADT and actually looking back at that, it, it is the perfect trail for a charity hike. You know, I've hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Great trail. You could do that for a charity hike too, but it's all trail and forest, which mm-hmm. again is fantastic. But the American Discovery Trail, you go through Washington, D.C., you go through Denver, Colorado, you go through these huge cities, you go through all these little tiny towns, you meet a ton of people that aren't related to the trail or sometimes don't even know about the trail, so you get conversations going. If you're on the PCT, everybody knows you're hiking the PCT, <laughs> so it's not as hard to spread that word. And when I hiked the ADT, I actually had a, a marketing company at Oshkosh Blue Door, and they were actually sending press releases to cities that we were coming to. So when we came into the city, we would get a phone call and we could set up interviews. So that was our biggest thing. I mean, we were spreading awareness through radio interviews, TV interviews, newspaper articles. and So it's a great trail that way. You just go through a ton of cities and meet a ton of people. Yeah, I was struck reading through your trail journal just how effective you were at the awareness. Lots of people want to raise awareness but you were amplifying it in all directions and experiencing great success to the point that on your first couple of days, even you were meeting people touched by your story already. There was already that personal connection showing up in your walk. You mentioned that the people struck you on this trip, but are there a couple of stories that stand out in particular about areas where you met people who were personally connected to aplastic anemia and MDS? Oh, man. Yeah, I have tons of stories. Because, again, we had the foundation working with us, too, so we're meeting a lot of patients. They connected us with a lot of people. One big one, I remember the Ott family, they came out and they lost their daughter. She was 12 years old. She died from aplastic anemia. And they came out, and they've been great advocates for it ever since and still are to this day. And they came out and they drove four and a half hours to meet up with us, Jeff and Susan Ott. And they came out and they brought us to hotel rooms at night. They bought us dinners. Jeff hiked with us for two days. Hmm. And then the last day, we actually went out to see Stephanie's grave. And that was a really nice moment because we were just kind of standing around talking. It was a really clear blue sky day, really calm. And this great big swirl leaf came up and swirled around us. And we all kind of said that was Stephanie, you know, making her presence known. And it was just kind of a really touching moment. We had a lot of those. We had another patient that came out. His name was Brad. He was an aplastic anemia survivor. He and his dad came out and put us up in hotels for a couple nights, and he walked with us for a couple days. Kinsey in Kentucky, she's another survivor. She's got a really amazing story, too. So we just met a lot of really cool people. And a lot of One lady we ran into randomly, she said, what are you guys doing out here? So we're hiking across <laughs> the country for aplastic anemia and MDS. She's like, this man she was living with, she was caretaking for had MDS, and she had no idea what we were doing. She didn't hear about us. It was just like a random meeting. So even those situations, all these memories and all these people, there were a lot. Yeah, there were a lot of people we met. And then in the midst of this, obviously not too far into the trip because it was DC Annapolis, but you go from walking for days on the trail to a congressional luncheon and a formal fundraiser. How did you deal yeah. with that transition? I have no idea. I look back at that. My mom and I were so tired because we were in the beginning of the hike and we were just completely beat down. I remember our feet hurt so bad. Because this was my first through hike and you learn quickly that your feet tend to swell and then you get all these blisters. And so our shoes were too small and our feet were full of blisters and my mom's were really bad. And we were just so tired and we got picked up by a couple ladies from the foundation and they kind of were driving us around. And the first thing they did is they bought us a pair of flip-flops so we wouldn't have to cram our feet into those (laughs) shoes for that luncheon, (laughs) you know. And I just remember, I, I look back and it just feels like we were just kind of riding a wave, you know, and going in there and talking to them. It wasn't, I don't remember really feeling nervous because I think it was just kind of natural. All we did is we went in there, we were tired and we just told them about our journey. And, but yeah, it was definitely quite the transition. We were put up in this really fancy hotel with robes and it was, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. I have to say <laughs> it was a cool experience. Yeah, it's amazing. Once again, I'm just struck by how remarkably effective you were at getting the word out. What was it like to make this journey with your mom? Oh, best part. It was the best part ever. My mom is just a really fun person to be around. We've always found stuff to laugh at every single day. I mean, even the days we had fights, we would just find a way to just laugh until we're almost peeing our pants. You know, I mean, it was just (laughs) such a fun journey. 
I have so many good memories from hiking that with my mom. And whenever we get together, we probably drive everybody crazy because we're going over all these stories and we just get all giggly. And I feel very, very lucky to be able to have an experience like that with my mom. I mean, every step for 4,500 miles across the country and sleeping in a tiny little two-person tent with her every night, it was just (laughs) really, really fun experience. She was a great hiking partner. What advice would you give to someone thinking about doing this with a close family member? What suggestions, practical advice would you offer? Oh, you need a sense of humor, for sure. (laughs) Find humor in anything. And I don't know, good communication, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Honestly, I think humor got us through a lot of it. On the really boring days, sometimes we found anything to laugh at. We came up with a silly song or whatever, you know, and some days we just hiked silently. You know, that's another thing to kind of respect each other's space. If one person needs time alone, you just say, hey, I need to hike by myself for a little while. Mm -hmm. Take a little space and yeah, sense of humor and give each other space when you need it. And I think those are the two biggest things. Do you have a sense? Did you find ways to measure it or sum it up the impact that you ultimately made on this trip in support of aplastic anemia and MDS? I'm not really sure. And I can't honestly, it's so long ago, I can't remember the exact number of dollars we raised, <laughs> but I think it was somewhere around 130000 Like Oh my was God. All done. Yeah, it was, like I said, I think what really fueled a lot of those interviews and stuff was we had somebody sending press releases for us. So that was what really got the momentum going in each of these towns we went through and really reached out. So we raised a lot of funds that way. And by the way, since 2006, we didn't have GoFundMe. I wasn't even on Facebook at the time. We had no (laughs) social media. We didn't have GoFundMe. We didn't have Patreon. We didn't have any of those things. So we did it the old-fashioned way. It was press releases by email and phone calls is basically what it came down to. So that was a whole ancient way of doing things, (laughs) but it was very effective. I mean, that company we were working with, they were amazing. So that really helped out. Do you have a sense of the awareness, the impact you had in terms of getting the word out? Yeah, I don't really know. I like to think that I had some impact that way. Like I said, now when I talk to people, I'll mention aplastic anemia, I can tell you almost always they've heard of it. Hmm. And that is completely different from when I was diagnosed with it and when I went on that hike. And I'm obviously not the only reason that happened, but I'd like to think that maybe I had just a tiny little part of that difference. And that's what I hoped for. Because now, I mean, when I post something about my journey back and bring up a memory or something, somebody's like, oh, my roommate has aplastic anemia or whatever. It's just people have heard of it now. And I think that's amazing. Do you think that if you didn't walk with the cause that you would have finished the walk? I'm wondering to what degree did having that greater cause drive you onward? I have to admit that having the cause behind you definitely gives you a boost. But my mom and I are so stubborn. We've got German (laughs) blood. And I'm telling you, we would have finished that hike no matter what. We were so determined. And I think we would have, whether or not we were doing it for the charity, just because that's how I kind of work. I usually set a goal and I power through until I finish it or try to, you know, I do my best (laughs) until I break. But we were pretty determined. I think we would have done it without the cause. But having the cause behind it definitely helped and made it a whole different cool experience. And that orientation that you brought up, you continue to pursue endurance challenges. You mentioned that you've done the PCT. You've done a bunch of other physical challenges in the years since the ADT. And even becoming a truck driver, that's an endurance challenge all its own. So, you know, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> what do you what do you get from these experiences? Oh, man, I remember when I first started running, like road running and stuff, a lot of it was at that time, I was going in every six months to a year to get my blood checked to make sure I wasn't relapsing and stuff. And like a lot of it was, if I'm running, I'm going to be able to tell right away if I'm getting sick. Part of it was just because I wanted to try to stay as healthy as I could. And that started the snowball over the years. And now last year, I ran my first 100 mile race, which I never in my life thought I'd be able to do that. And what I love about it is, honestly, this is going to sound super cheesy. It really makes me feel alive. When you run like an endurance race like that or hike the PCT, you get every single life emotion. And especially the ultra races, it's all like compact into this one or two days. You get fear, you get sad, you get angry, you get tired, you hurt, you feel euphoria. You get all these emotions packed into this really short amount of time. And you get to be around all these other people. And it's just it's such a cool experience. And I just remember my 100K that I ran last year. I remember it just was this huge rainstorm and it was just pouring rain and I was just like laughing and crying at the same time, splashing in these puddles and running through this. I'm like, this is why I do this. This makes me feel so alive. I don't know. It's really fun for me. I like going until I just can't go anymore and then continuing to go. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. It's immensely satisfying. Uh-huh. Awesome. Well, thank you, Robin. This has been perfect. I've really enjoyed getting to hear about the impact that you made on this walk. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's always fun to talk about. And man, I could go on for hours of stories. <laughs> As I've said before, my walking background is in the realm of pilgrimages, not wilderness treks. In that context, the overarching cause is historically quite common, though it can vary from an other-oriented purpose, like walking in pursuit of a miraculous cure for a loved one, to a more self-centered one, like seeking personal salvation or enlightenment. That deeper, often spiritual purpose and the targeted destination are inextricably linked, the sacred site at the walk's end gives focus to that cause. It is through that context that I learned about the eschatological and etymological relationship between sacred and sacrifice, that a sacrifice is an offering made in service to making something sacred, or to bolster one's relationship with the sacred. And as I think more about the relationship between a selfless cause and the American Discovery Trail, I increasingly see it along those same lines. The cause takes an otherwise secular pursuit and imbues it with a layer of the sacred, bridging the gap between physical and spiritual, and elevating the experience beyond the merely self-indulgent to something more profound. That's not to criticize those walking merely for pleasure or self-satisfaction. Good on you if that's your purpose. We don't give ourselves that leeway enough. Rather, though, I think it speaks to our hunger to translate our actions into something greater, something more powerful than what they are on the base material level. That's all for this episode. Thanks to Dee Fournier and Robin Grappa for speaking with me. You can find Dee at dgoesfromtrialtotrail.com, while Robin's online home is so many miles.wordpress.com. You can find Sea to Shining Sea on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts and on my personal site, DaveWinson.com.